the title of my message very simple, Divorce and Remarriage. Um, I think everybody would agree, even theologians and pastors would agree, that God hates divorce. It's not his ultimate plan. It wasn't his best plan. He wanted one man, one woman for life, the two becoming one. He established marriage to look like that. But we need to remind ourselves, though God may hate divorce, he loves people who have been divorced. He loves people who have been divorced. There are certain subjects in the church that we almost act like they are entering into the unforgivable sin. And sadly, divorce seems to have been one of them. And it's not. My Bible says that Jesus died for all sins. They're all under the blood. What Jesus really hates is all those things that led up to a divorce. And I believe he hates a lot of the things that take place during and after a divorce. Those things that probably in and of themselves are sinful. But they're all forgivable. And we need to understand that. We need to understand his heart. Many, many people in this room have been divorced. Many of you know the pain. You know what it's like to go through that turmoil. You know what it does, even under the best of circumstances, to shaking the family structure. You know. You've been there. And some of you have chosen to be remarried. You've been divorced and remarried. And you've discovered that, gee, marriage was hard the first time. It's hard the second time. And sometimes you even discover that there's a whole new set of challenges bringing families together. But you also may have discovered this, that there's life, there's hope, and there's joy again being remarried. So you've discovered that, yes, some of us have been divorced. Yes, some of us have been divorced and remarried. And some of you in here that I know of have been divorced and for whatever reason have chosen never to remarry. And that's okay too. This topic is very culturally relevant. And as I said, sadly, the church, lots of churches, avoid the issue. Because there's so much differing opinion about what the Bible actually says and the way that things get interpreted and then the way things get applied. I have pastor friends who I admire and respect who disagree with me completely on my position that I'm going to be sharing today. I have many that agree with me completely on the position I'm going to be sharing, and I've got some that are in between, and that's okay. But I want everybody to understand and know what I personally believe and where the church stands on this issue, and we want you to understand that whether you've been divorced or not, we love you. God loves you. If you've been remarried after divorce or not, God loves you and we love you. And we hope you have the greatest marriage there ever was or will be. But I want you to know that I've come to this conclusion based on study of Scripture, not just out of sympathy or empathy or compassion. Some of you would say, we know that, Mike. You've got none of those. (laughs) But that's not quite true. So I want to share some things with you. You know, when I say it's culturally relevant, it was relevant enough in Old Testament times that God addressed it. And it was relevant enough in New Testament times that Jesus and Paul addressed it. It's been relevant since marriage came into existence. And we're going to talk about it. 
And as Ben mentioned last week briefly, there are a lot of varying opinions. And I'm going to just mention two now because I think they're significant in understanding some of the scriptures that we'll look at. You know, <clears throat> Ben said to me when we were talking on the phone one time about one of the verses, he says, well, it says what it says. And I said, you're right. But does it, does it mean what it says? Now, you might say, wait a minute, Mike, where are you going with that? I want to show you where I'm going with those kinds of things. Because we need to understand and take Scripture in context of the rest of Scripture, and we need to take it sometimes in context of the culture. And sometimes what we do when we read a Scripture is we read and we grab a hold of this much of the verse, and we miss some very little significant things in the verse or right before it or right after. And we forget sometimes when Jesus is addressing something or an issue, sometimes the, addressing, the issue he's addressing, the answer isn't this broad answer that's universal for all man, all time. He's specifically answering a question that a Pharisee was asking him, trying to catch him in a trap or a snare. And he wasn't making a universal statement. He was answering the question in such a way to deal with that specific issue. And so you can see in this, there's a couple of guys rabbis, rabbinical schools, if you would like, in biblical times. One was led by a man by the name of Hillel, and another was led by a man named Shammai, or Shammai. And they, they debated, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but they debated way back then, and they debated like 354 issues. And they only disagreed on five. And one of them was divorce and remarriage. So this is back in the time of Jesus. They weren't even agreeing back then. The school of Hillel, the Hillelites, said a man could divorce a woman for any reason whatsoever. Better not burn the bacon. You could be out the door. Adultery, you could be out the door. Didn't smile when I wanted you, you could be out the door. Basically, any reason a man could divorce the woman. And then Shammai and the Shammaiites said adultery was the only grounds for divorce. There were no exceptions to this. So there's these two schools of Pharisees, and some of the time when you read the question that the Pharisees are asking Jesus, you kind of can see in there when you keep that in the back of your mind, aha, they're trying to snare him, they're trying to cause trouble, or they're trying to prove that their side's right in these questions. So we need to realize and understand that Jesus is addressing divorce and remarriage. He's often responding to a specific question being asked by a Pharisee and not making necessarily a universal proclamation. So before we go into the scripture, I want to look at the divorce situation in America. And some of us may get discouraged by some of these numbers, but I actually found myself a little bit encouraged. But I hope we find ourselves more motivated. How many of you ever heard that 50% of divorces in America, or 50% of marriages in America end in divorce? Have you heard that before? Well, there is no real sound data that's ever supported that. That information came from projections of researchers when no-fault divorce came into existence in 1970. California was the first state that passed this law, and it became, came into effect on January 1st, 1970, no-fault divorce, and then it just kind of swept across the country. And these researchers were projecting this 50% number. And the reality is it's, it's not very accurate. There's a couple of researchers. There's one, a researcher and an author, Shanti Feldhahn, and she combined, went together with the Barner Research Group that most of us have probably heard about, and they did some real studies on this. And their studies showed that it, it wasn't 50%, it was only 
That's good news and bad news, right? It's better than 50%, but still that means 33% of marriages are ending in divorce in our culture. How many of you have heard this before? You know, I've said this before, by the way, so if you've heard all my messages, you've heard this. The statistics for Christians is, are, is just as bad as it is for the world. Heard that before? It's not true either. Thank God, it's not true. Those numbers come based on the way questions are asked and what the, the questions actually mean. For example, are you a Christian? Yes. Have you been divorced? Yay or nay? Well, what's a Christian? So this research broke it into two groups that they called active Christians and nominal Christians. Active Christians were defined or described as this, those who put their faith into action and attend church regularly. They were active Christians. Their, their faith was a part of their life on a day-to-day, a week-to-week basis. And these active Christians had a divorce rate 27 to 50% lower than non-churchgoers. But if you look at that nominal Christian statistic up there, it's kind of shocking. Nominal Christians, those who call themselves Christians, whether they are or not, who knows, but do not actively engage with their faith, were 20% more likely to divorce than even the general population. Figure that one out. 20% more. So when you ask this question, we need to look at it in a little bit different light. The active Christians, Christians whose faith is important enough that they're acting on it, they're living it out day to day, they're attending church, they're fellowshipping with believers. Where do I find this encouraging? And the fact that it should encourage us and motivate us. That, you know what, just because you're here, your marriage has got a much better chance than somebody who's out there and never putting their faith to work. But it still takes work. And it's not a foolproof thing. There was a man by the name of Dr. Brad Wilcox of the National Marriage Project, and he stated this. Active conservative Protestants who attend church regularly are actually 35% less likely to divorce than those who have no religious preference. Feldhound found that 72% in their research, 72% of all married people are still married to their first spouse. Sadly, that means 28% aren't but 72% are. And the, the other thing she found was out of that 72%, four out of five are even happy. <laughs> I guess that isn't bad. <laughs> four out of five, happy. And one of the reasons for this was found to be this. Those couples whose first commitment was to the lordship of Jesus Christ did not put unrealistic expectations on their spouse to meet needs that only God can meet. There are certain things in us as created human beings that only God can accomplish. And even if we're Christian, we need to begin to understand that in a greater way. There's certain things that if I put it on Cindy for me to feel accepted and loved 24-7, I'm in trouble. And she's even in more trouble if she looks to me to meet those needs. We can't do it all the time. God can. So Christians whose faith is active, they're involved in church, they're putting their faith to, to work in their life. 
they're allowing the Holy Spirit to lead and guide, have an unbelievably higher success rate. But notice, there are still divorces. And there will be until we're all in heaven. And then there'll be no divorce. And there'll be no marriage. But until then, we live in a fallen earth. The sinful nature is around us. Christians can have our hearts hardened. Christians can act like non-believers. And all of these things can lead to divorce. I want to go to Scripture now, and I'm going to look first at the law of divorce in Deuteronomy 24. And I think even here there might be some misunderstanding when we think about divorce. Starting at verse 1, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Some translations say some uncleanness. We're going to look at that word in the Hebrew just very briefly, but that word there, the way it got interpreted between Hillel and Shammai, caused him to go in this, these different directions. And he writes her a certificate of divorce. Notice, notice, when God is giving this law to Moses, he is not instituting divorce. It already exists. The certificate of divorce already exists. He is just making this comment. He is actually going to put a little more regulation on what the people are doing. He says in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. Since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Notice, this legislation did not initiate divorce. It already exists. God is speaking and he mentions the certificate of divorce because the culture understood the certificate of divorce. It already existed. And notice, he is not condemning the woman in this whole thing. A certificate of divorce actually was created to allow a woman to get remarried, not to prohibit her from getting remarried. A certificate of divorce was to identify, quote-unquote, the innocent spouse in the situation. Now, in no way am I saying a, the, the divorce papers that we have in our culture today are the same as this. We don't know who's innocent and who's not innocent, and it's really not up to us to decide. But the certificate of divorce was already in place in their culture. And God doesn't come and say, get rid of that thing. There can be no divorce and remarriage. No. He talks about the certificate of divorce, which was designed to allow the woman to remarry. And it goes on. The word I want to point out there that I said is indecency or cleanness. In the Hebrew, it's just a short word called erva. Erva. And it means, and here's some of the ways it's translated in the Bible. It's sometimes translated nakedness, disgrace, blemish, shame, uncleanness, indecency, improper behavior. Hallel read that word and said, can be anything. can be anything. So we can get married for any cause. And that phrase, for any cause, is kind of interesting because it shows up in the discussions Jesus has with the Pharisees about marriage and divorce without any cause. And that was the phrase 
in this whole idea of the certificate of divorce from the Hillel perspective. So there's this whole camp of Pharisees over here that you can divorce them for any reason you want. A man could divorce a woman for any reason they wanted. There is, a, there is examples of a woman who could divorce men, but the man had to agree to it. It didn't matter what the woman thought. Man could divorce them for any reason. And Shammai took this word and he thought it meant adultery, sexual sin. So that was the only reason. So we've had these camps and in, in theologians and theology arguing about these things forever. Forever. Which one's right? They both were using Scripture. Notice, law of, divorce, of Moses permitted divorce to continue, but it did give it some restrictions. Therefore, when we read Malachi, and Ben shared this Scripture last week, you know, it says, this is the Scripture where it says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God. It says, your Lord God. I hate divorce. Is that a universal proclamation for all time, for all men, I hate divorce, don't get divorced, there's no such thing as divorce. Some people take it that way. But if you look at the context of the Scripture in verse 11, you know what some of the Jewish men were doing with their Jewish wives? Divorcing them so they could marry Gentile women. And that's what the prophet Malachi is addressing specifically. I hate divorce. I hate the way you're doing it. For just any reason you want, you're casting aside your Jewish wife so you can marry this good-looking Gentile. Maybe you can get into the inheritance of that little Gentile lady when her old man dies. We need to look at context and understand what's going on in these situations. And again, I'm going to be the first to tell you, uh, I'm not the world's most renowned expert on any of this. But I will tell you that they don't agree with each other. And not all pastors agree with me. But I want you to know when we get done, I think you'll know where I stand. That's my hope anyway. So I don't believe there was a universal prohibition intended there whatsoever. I think he was addressing it. He didn't stop divorce. He encouraged the certificate of divorce, which allowed a woman to remarry. So because of the disagreement of the way they interpreted the word Irvah and the way different groups of Pharisees supplied it, much of the discussion that Jesus is having with them, especially when they ask him a question, is kind of around that issue. And we need to understand that versus this universal application. So does God permit divorce and remarriage? We're going to look at Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. That would seem to be pretty clear, wouldn't it? Everyone. Who's everyone? Everyone, right? Who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Is that a universal application? If it is, Jesus himself contradicts himself. Because a little bit later, he adds an exception clause. In Matthew, except for adultery. Oh, so Luke was wrong when he was quoting Jesus. No, we need to understand what's being addressed and what's being looked at. Jesus, we need to get this straight first and foremost. No matter what you hear me say, God does not like divorce. It's just not his plan A. I don't like divorce. I hate divorce. But it's going to happen. And what does God say about 
the people involved when it does happen. In Matthew 19, Jesus himself introduces his first exception, adultery. Notice how it says in verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking. We miss that part of the verse when we read the rest of it so often. So the Pharisees came to him and they're going to test him. They're going to trick him. They're going to trap him. They're trying to cause problems. And they say to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? The Hillel mindset. For any cause at all. Jesus basically ignores their question. And he goes on and says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? This is where Ben took us last week in Genesis. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This is a little sidebar, but I've been wrestling with this most of the week, especially yesterday. Notice what it says there. What God has joined together. It does not say whom God has joined together. What did God join together? A marriage. He made a marriage unit. I believe he's talking more about the marriage than he is the individuals. When God brings a marriage together, God's hand is upon it. I don't believe for a moment that God's hand is upon every marriage. Two unbelievers getting married? A believer and a believer? Unbeliever and a believer? I hope so. I don't know. I'm not God. But I don't believe he's on every one. He goes on and it says, they are no longer to what God, therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. He said, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted. Moses didn't command. He did not institute divorce. He did not institute a certificate of divorce. He permitted it because of the hardness of their hearts. Brothers and sisters, we can have hardened hearts. We can believe, be believers and we can love the Lord, and there can be things that get into our lives and areas of our lives our heart can become hardened. And hopefully, the Holy Spirit will soften that. Hopefully, we will listen to godly counsel, godly advice from brothers and sisters in the Lord. But if you think your heart can't be hardened in an area, you're wrong. And the church sometimes acts like the whole church has had their heart hardened when it comes to divorced people, especially if those divorced people are remarried. We've done the same thing with homosexuals. We've done the same thing often with abortion. We make these people uh, seem like they're lepers. That's not God's heart at all. And it shouldn't be our heart at all. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been that way. And he says, I do, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. There you go again. Mike, there's the only exception, adultery. Well, in Luke, there was no exception. Now in Matthew, there is an exception. Read this thing. Jesus is addressing what was given and and spoken in the Old Testament very specifically. He is answering their question. And he's saying, no, that's not what that verse meant. You're interpreting it 
wrong. He's only answering the Deuteronomy 24.1 question. In Matthew 5, and I believe Ben read these verses last week, Jesus is again addressing the for any cause idea for the certificate of divorce. It was said, whoever sends a wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Notice he says, it was said. He doesn't say it was written. It was said. We've got these two schools arguing, and one of them is saying, give them a certificate of divorce for any reason you want. The other one is saying, only for adultery. Whoever sends his wife away, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or adultery, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So it seems like, once again, we're back at this place where first it was no exception. Now it appears there's only one exception, adultery. We know there's a lot of marriages that end in divorce where there's not been adultery. Are they out of God's will? Of course, his will is that no one gets divorced. Does that mean they're living in sin the rest of their life? I, I, I believe not in the least. One of the reasons I believe that is, if that's the case, Paul really messed up when he wrote Corinthians. Because Paul in Corinthians adds more exceptions to the adultery. And I am not God and smart enough to think that I know how many exceptions there are or how many there could be. God did not deal with every single situation. Paul didn't deal with every single situation. When he got into Corinth and he's dealing with a bunch of issues, you know what he comes up with? In uh, 1 Corinthians 7, and you should read more of 7, I'm going to just read verse 15, because he's talking about an unbelieving husband, an unbelieving wife, if one leaves, should they stay, blah, blah, blah. He says, If the unbelieving leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such case, but God has called us to peace. So there's at least another and maybe two more exceptions being added by Paul. I believe Paul knew what Jesus taught. Amen? I believe he knew what were in the Gospels that we have. I believe he knew that Jesus had said adultery. But here he adds an abandonment clause. If they leave you, you're free. You're no longer under bondage. Some people also look at that and would say, it seems to be if two unbelievers get married and divorced, nothing, none of this applies because their marriage was never brought together by God if they're not believers. There's so many opinions. Some people, some theologians, some pastors take that verse and say, if you don't give a letter of a certificate of divorce, that makes that, let's say, I, I, didn't, I didn't cheat, but I got tired of Cindy. Get out. I want a letter of divorce or a certificate of divorce. Says, nope, you're not getting one. Well, what's the world going to think? She has no certificate of divorce. She must be an adulteress. Anybody who marries her is going to be an adulterer. The implication is there, which to me makes no sense at all because under the law, what would you do with an adulterous spouse? You killed him, stoned him. But there's so many ways of interpreting and translating these things. But I think to be so rigid and legalistic as some are, you know, it's like they take that one verse in, in Luke and they say, no divorce. If you marry after divorce, it's adultery. I have pastor friends that will absolutely not marry divorced people because he takes that position. An interesting aspect of Paul and that last part of that verse, 
And when I, when I teach or preach, I hate assuming anything, but I'm going to confess up front, I'm going to make a few assumptions here, and I could be wrong. Okay? But when Paul says this, he finishes this, and it's like part of his, part of his way of evaluating the situation with the Corinthians here is, you know, if the unbelieving one leaves, you're okay. You can get, get divorced and get remarried. And then he finishes with that thought, but God has called us to peace. It's almost as if the principle of peace supersedes some of these regulations or legalistic positions about divorce. I think I have a weak argument, maybe, at best, but I think it's a possibility. So I consider this as a pastor. There are many, many things besides adultery that destroy peace in a marriage. There are many, many things that make a complete travesty of the picture of a married couple representing Christ and His church. Addictions. Physical abuse. Child abuse. Many addictive damaging habits. Pornography. The list could go on and on and on. Financial desertion. acting like an unbeliever. All of those things are going to destroy peace in a marriage. Now, I'm not going to look at just that to justify any divorce. But it does cause me to think, what was Paul thinking when he said, God has called us to peace? And it causes me to want to err on the side of grace as long as I don't feel like I'm violating my position scripturally. A man by the name of John Davis, John J. Davis, wrote Divorce and Remarriage, Evangelical Ethics. And he wrote a comment about this very part of Paul's verse. He said, Using Paul's logic about peace, such intolerable situations are also legitimate reasons for divorce with permission to remarry. If the spouse persistently refuses all attempts at reconciliation or repentance of marriage-destroying behavior, he or she has de facto placed herself or himself in the position of an unbelieving, deserting spouse. Personally, I don't know that I could go quite that far, but it gives food for thought when we consider marriage and divorce. To kind of summarize, and and honestly, I confess that I could have put together four hours of material or more so you're not getting details. I'd be glad to speak with any of you about this topic if you want to. But we see in the Old Testament, it takes divorce as an already established custom. When he gave the law to Moses, it was already happening. Abuses were being criticized, and the practice was not outlawed. Interesting. In Mark and Luke, the statements of Jesus seem to prohibit divorce, but Jesus did not mean them to be exceptions, exceptionless code or rules. In Matthew, the exception of adultery was allowed. Paul seemed to recognize that Jesus' statements didn't cover every situation. Abandonment, divorce between unbelievers became exceptions there. And I believe Paul probably realized there'd be more exceptions. And he at least seems to, seems to, and again, I, I hate using phrases like that, 
but it seems to raise the possibility of the principle of peace, allowing for other exceptions to make marrying after divorce permissible. So I put these next two slides up there because I want to be really clear where I stand. This is me as the pastor of this church, what I personally believe. I believe personally in the sanctity of marriage and that God's will is for a marriage to last for life with each partner loving, honoring, caring for, and cleaving to the other just as Christ loves his church. It starts there. However, this church and I strongly discourage <clears throat> this church and I strongly discourage divorce and encourage forgiveness and reconciliation whenever possible. But knowing that with humans, this ideal is not always going to take place. I personally hold to the exceptions which we have discussed and acknowledge that there may be additional situations which make for remarriage following divorce to be in the perfect will of God. Therefore, even as we discourage divorce, realizing the hardness of human hearts, in most cases where all attempts at reconciliation have failed and forgiveness has taken place, we will allow divorced persons to remarry. That's what I believe the Scripture tells me. We are called to love one another. We don't know the whole story in marriages and relationships. Divorced people, you know, if we're going to take that kind of position, divorced people should not be hardly functioning in ministry. Matter of fact, if we're going to take it literally, that if anybody remarries after a divorce, they're an adulterer, they should not be in this church for an extended period of time because we would have to believe where they are living in continual sin in spite of us knowing the truth and them knowing the truth. We would have to be consistent in our positions. And I'm not there. I believe the scripture allows for remarriage after divorce. And I know for a fact we are supposed to and are called to love, encourage, reach out, be there for people before a divorce, during a divorce, and if it happens, after a divorce. Because that's what we're called to do. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray, as I prayed at the beginning of my message, that if there's anything here that is not of you, Lord, I pray that it does not do any damage. God, I pray that your heart and my heart are in alignment here and it comes through that you love marriage. It's your idea. You hate divorce, but you love the people. I pray, Lord, for those that have been divorced here, that are remarried, that you would bless their marriage. God, that would be filled with love and joy and that Jesus would be the center of that marriage. Father, those here that are divorced and are still single, Lord, I pray that you would give them grace to live out the place where you have them even right now. God, I pray for those that are going through marital issues. Even as men prayed, we prayed last week as a church for marriages. It's a tough, tough thing for two people to live together in marriage. There's always going to be issues. Lord, I pray you would give grace, give wisdom, give us servants' hearts, break that spirit of selfishness that can so enter in. 
Lord, I pray that our marriages would truly be a representation that you want it to be of the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. Lord, I pray all these things that you would receive glory and honor in your son's name. Amen. Amen. And again, if you want to ask me any questions or visit about what I shared today, I'm more than willing to do that.